You're listening to DraftKings Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This dude, John Marco Pazeco. Hey, everybody say in Italy that he is too small. <laughs> but did you see me, man? I started to play basketball. That I was in, in my class. I was the, the, the smallest one. And everybody asked me, what are you doing? What do you want to do in your life? And I said all the time, play basketball. And everybody was laughing. And so what do you think? That I don't put Marco because he's small? I do pisco matter, right? He's a legend. An absolute legend. I didn't know of this guy. I mean, of course, I watched the 2004 Athens Olympics and Italy got the silver medal that year, led by this 5'11 point guard, Jan Marco Pazeco. And now he's coaching the Italian national team in Eurobasket. They beat Nikola Jokic and the Serbian national team, a huge upset over the weekend. And the dude is just out of his mind. He gets a technical in the, earlier in the game and then gets tossed while losing by a few points in the third quarter. The bench gets a technical and therefore he has to fall on that grenade. And then he kisses every one of his players and some just go out and kiss him. He hugs them. And I mean, mm-hmm. he breaks down crying as he's leaving the court. Yeah, that's a little much. A little look at me, Luigi there. Mamma mia. Look at me, He's not even winning the game. It's not even the closing seconds of the game. And he's breaking down, crying as he's leaving the court. They ended up winning though, right? <laughs> yeah. So his plus minus sucks. Of course, after the game, everyone's like, yeah, his ejection, you know, lit a fire under our asses. Oh, yeah. And his emotions really drove us. And we wanted to win it for the Gipper. But in the closing moments of the victory, he's in the locker room watching with like a trainer and leaves to go run out onto the court. And he meets Giannis Antetokounmpo in the hallway and doesn't just meet him. He jumps, bear hugs him. A flying hug. And Giannis is just like, what the? He flew there. He got great hops, man. Let me tell you, because he, he got up there. And he's on his way to the tunnel so that he can greet the losing team. He's greeting Serbia. Yo, the hugging two dudes at once by just throwing your arms out like this to grab like two seven foot <laughs> Serbian guys. <laughs> so good. I think this just shows us that we keep the emotion too buried yeah. in the American game. You know, we had to go to Eurobasket to see how the atomic fly, La Mosca Atomica, can really just motivate his team by sheer exuberance. His nickname, the atomic fly. It's perfect. That's a spicy meatball. Is that too much problematic? Uh, yeah, possibly. I'm sure what I just did there would be the last problematic thing that's discussed on this podcast. My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. 
Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> This is Basketball Illuminati. I'm Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I'm joined by my five-star Illumin Army generals. That's Amin Hassan and Anthony Mays, our producer. We've got a big show today, big thing that just dropped, Robert Sarver's investigation by the NBA, about a 40-page report. We're going to get into that. We're also going to talk to Matt Sullivan of Rolling Stone magazine, who has a cover story about Stephen Curry. We're going to talk about Curry's off the court activism, his openness to talk politics, the KD, Kyrie stuff. We're going to get into all of that, as well as the real story behind why Stephen Curry's favorite day is Pi Day. But first... You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstroh and Amin El-Hassan. All right, on the agenda today, we learned quite surprisingly that the NBA had concluded its report into Robert Sarver and the Phoenix Suns organization. The NBA issued a mass email as well as a press release and a 40-plus page document that Amin and I and Mays, we've looked through. And to back up here for the Illuminati listeners, Amin worked for Robert Sarver. That's right. From 2006 to 2012, I was an employee of the Phoenix Suns. When that news story came out last year uh, on ESPN, there were many stories in there that I knew about. There was stories I did not know about. And then there were stories that I was actually present for. Mm. It made for an interesting potpourri of information. I'm still in contact with a lot of people, some of whom still work for the team many of whom do not. And so I have a lot of resources in regards to corroboration to many of these allegations. So the big upshot here is that Robert Sarver is not having to force sell his team. Nor is he indefinitely banned or anything. He caught a one-year suspension and a $10 million bind. The max penalties of the NBA. Yes. In the constitution of the governors of the NBA, that if there is a fine, that is capped, $10 million. Yes. I did the math. The Phoenix Suns as an organization, as a franchise, are worth $1.8 billion. According to Forbes, the valuation, the $10 million fine amounts to 0.6% of that value. A comparative drop in the bucket for Robert Sarver. The one-year suspension, he's no longer allowed to be at the arena, participate in any basketball activities. Basically, he has to be away from the team. He can't represent the team in any capacity over the next year. And he can't have any involvement with business or basketball operations. And that's a big one because people are saying, well, surely doesn't that the owner have to sign off on things? Like, no. No, he doesn't. Yeah, as part of this investigation, Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz Law Firm, which the NBA paid to do this independent investigation. Remember, everybody, when there's an independent investigation, it is not really independent. It is paid for by the organization. So just remember that this investigation is financed by the league. So as part of that investigation, they interviewed 12 minority owners mm-hmm. who have worked with Sarver over the years. And so they are part of this investigation as well. Let's just start here. I mean, what was your reaction to the reports and the ultimate punishment of one year suspension and a $10 million fine? It's what I figured was going to happen. At the very beginning, I had a lot of friends, like I said, sons, employees, either current or former. 
some of whom were just Phoenix natives, locals who were big fans of the Suns. And they asked, oh, you think they're going to make Robert sell the team? And I said, absolutely not, because there's not enough here. That's not to say that the reports are untrue. It's just that there's not enough material evidence to escalate this beyond what he got, which is the one-year suspension and the $10 million fine. Right. And you're not saying that they're not serious allegations. Yeah. And you're not saying that they're not true. You're just saying, like, unless there's a tape. Material evidence. Yeah. Material evidence, right? So Donald Sterling, who everybody knew to be a glorious piece of shit, had on tape not only being racist, pretty much, but disparaging Magic Johnson, who at the time was a minority owner, had a minority share in the Lakers. Boom. The Atlanta Hawks had not only the audio tape of the infamous Luol Deng scouting report, Intel report, that used a gross stereotype to characterize Luol, but also had the emails about how to attract white customers to Hawks games. There was a preponderance of material evidence, not testimony, not hearsay, actual, here it is, detailing issues there. In the case of the Hawks, obviously, there was no act by the league other than Danny Ferry being suspended. Rather, the owner willingly sold the team, put the team on sale immediately, right? In this case, we don't have a whole lot of that. There are some emails that corroborate Robert being a jerk, violating the handbook, the rules and regulations policy of what constitutes a toxic workplace. But when it comes to the smoking guns of either sexual abuse or racism, there just wasn't a whole lot other than some testimony about things he said that were made, quote unquote, in jest. So after reading the ESPN article a year ago, I was like, I'll be honest, this doesn't have what I thought it would have, which is something solid that they can take to court. It just didn't have that. What they did have is a whole lot of testimony, like you said, of this is what happened. You could describe it as he said, she said, but in the investigation, they corroborated a lot of the accounts, several people saying the same thing independently that this happened. If there was a tape on several of these examples, I think he's out of here. I think so too. I think the big thing that people have to remember is if it's not a cut and dry situation, you try to get him out of here. Sarver will sue because he's going to sue that, I don't say wrongful termination because he's not an employee, but they violated the charter of the league in getting him up out of here for things that did not rise to the muster of a bannable offense. Now, mind you, it's not about, oh, if he sues, what if the league loses? It's not about that. It's about if he sues, we go into what's called discovery. Mm-hmm. Discovery means we get to go into everybody's trash can. And everybody's records and everybody's emails. We do that. We don't know what we'll find. So I'll give you a great example, ladies and gentlemen. The Washington football team was under investigation. They had their emails ran through discovery, right? As a result of that, they found a series of emails from John Gruden, who at the time of the email was working for ESPN, but at the time of the investigation was a head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. Emails come out. John Gruden has all of this offensive language in them. Now John Gruden's out. That wasn't an investigation into John Gruden. It was an investigation into Washington. But in the process of discovery, you find things. So if we were to go through discovery for 29 other franchises and go through all their emails and text messages and things of that nature, we don't know what we'll find. So when you ask yourself, why didn't they ban them? Why didn't they kick them out? First of all, you need a 75% quorum to do that. Second of all, you do that, he sues, we're in discovery, we're looking through everybody's stuff. Now, how many more people are going to have scandals on their hands that they wouldn't have had otherwise had they just hit them with the fine and the one-year suspension and kept it moving? Yeah, I think when you look at this situation, you can see how other owners would detest some of the content in this report would be disgusted by some of these things that would happen in this report. However, do they want to get that 75% vote and get him up out of here? I think, like you said, there's calculus here by other owners that if we go into discovery, there are going to be a bunch of John Gruden's here in the NBA, and we want to prevent that. We don't want it to get that messy. We don't want it to get to that point. But the second thing, I mean, and you've already alluded to it, I believe, is what if it happens to me? 
if Sarver's out of here, mm-hmm. well, then maybe my candor or my conduct. My joke at the Christmas party or my misunderstanding with so-and-so. And I'm not saying that, oh, it's just a joke. It's just a misunderstanding. I'm saying that's how these people are looking at themselves. What if something I did that was just innocent can be construed as me being misogynistic or me being racist or me being this, that, the other? That's the door you open. That's Pandora's box. And so to me, it was never going to be something too harsh. It needed to be harsh enough where he'll take it. Yeah. You go too harsh and he doesn't take it. Now you've got problems. You don't go harsh enough and you got a PR issue. So this was, I think, the league's way of trying to strike that happy medium, given, by the way, that an investigation happened, right? This wasn't Adam Silver flying off the seat of his pants making this ruling. It's a year investigation. They talked to 500 people. 320 people interviewed, 202 current, 100 former, 80,000 pages of emails, text messages, and other documents. And that's the big number. Robert Sarver did come out with a statement, by the way, issued through the Suns. While I disagree with some of the particulars of the NBA's report, I would like to apologize for my words and actions that offended our employees. I take full responsibility for what I have done. I'm sorry for causing this pain. And these errors of judgment are not consistent with my personal philosophy or my values. I accept the consequences of the NBA's decision. This moment is an opportunity for me to demonstrate a capacity to learn and grow as we continue to build a working culture where every employee feels comfortable and validated. That sentence, I accept the consequences of the NBA's decision, is huge. That's what this is about. They got Sarver to a place that he would not escalate this to the courts. And the fact that he is accepting it means... Okay, maybe we can move on from this. And this report included a letter on behalf of Robert Sarver by Thomas A. Clare of Clare Lock Law Firm. They have all these bullet points about why Sarver is not the man that this investigation purports him to be. And one of those, I mean, was that he has the most diverse front office. No other team in the NBA employed a higher percentage of people of color in basketball operations, 55%, than the Phoenix Suns organization. To me, that seems difficult to accept, that I can't be racist because I have a diverse front office. You look at Donald Sterling's front office. Elgin Baylor was the GM for 22 years from 1986 to 2008. And his coaches were also people of color. So you had Paul Silas, Don Chaney, Alvin Gentry, and Doc Rivers. Mm -hmm. But that didn't stop what happened, what Donald Sterling's views are. So the idea that Sarver is saying, hey, look at all the diversity, that could also be used as a cover-up, a front to make sure that I can't be racist. Look at my GM, look at my head coach. And also some of these anecdotes where a coach is saying, what you need to do, Sarver, do something about your diversity. And he's like, oh, I hate diversity. No. Yeah. And then Sarver's explanation was, no, I meant diversity of basketball principles. Which doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Come on now. And what was the other one about the foxhole? Oh, yeah. In the use of the N-word, it was one of the examples of the use of the N-word where in a team meeting... One player allegedly said, oh, he likes this white player because he got some nigga in him. That's what the black player was saying. And there were two conflicting recounts of how Robert repeated the N-word. In one of them, Robert's assertion is that he said, instead of using the N-word, we're in a foxhole together. But multiple people said that's not what happened. And the investigators say... No other witness interviewed by us recalled Sarver making a suggestion of different wording or any reference to a foxhole. Kind of feel like if you said foxhole, you'd remember it. Yeah. The other thing is the NBA also had documentation that Sarver wrote the N-word in full. Yes. To the league. With the A at the end. By the way, the incident in question, I believe that's Draymond Green he's talking about. (laughs) That he's complaining that Draymond Green was running around saying nigga, 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 all game long. Complained about it to his staffers. They told him you can't say it. And then he turned around and wrote an email and complained about it to the league in which he used it verbatim. Again, the first documented instance of him using the N-word was 2004, after which he was explicitly told you can't do this. So to have that 12 years later, that's shocking. That is pretty shocking. But that's on par for Robert. This is who he is. This is a guy who 
operates as if the rules don't apply to him. And he is a habitual line stepper and line crosser, or excuse me, he exhibits the behavior of a habitual line stepper and line crosser. And all of this is par for the course. Like everything I've read in here, I can't confirm that these stories happen, but I'm telling you they are not out of the ordinary or off brand in any shape, form or fashion. All right. Let me ask you this one. Sarver once unnecessarily dropped his underwear and exposed his genitals to a male employee who was on his knees in front of Sarver performing a fitness check that Sarver had requested and had undergone before. Past experience would have taught Sarver that dropping his underwear was unnecessary for the fitness check. The employee asked Sarver to pull his underwear back up and Sarver did. The employee found Sarver's conduct inappropriate and recounted the incident contemporaneously to other team employees. That feels like Sarver to you? Yes, yes. <laughs> Second, Sarver once grabbed a male employee at a son's holiday party and danced pelvis to pelvis with him. Yes. Pantsing a staffer in front of the cameras during an ALS ice bucket challenge. Not only is that something that's 100% in his wheelhouse of humor, a lot of his humor, if you'll notice, involves kind of humiliation on some level. But also that was something that was witnessed by, it was an all-employee meeting, pretty much. I've watched the video, yeah. Even he confirms that it happened. The big thing in here, a lot of allegations about his attitudes and expressions and comments towards women in the workplace and policies in the workplace and their respect for women who are pregnant. There's a ton of stories in here about this. You might say to yourself, hey, shouldn't this all be submitted to HR? Man, it's tough. And I got to be careful about what I can and can't say here. The HR that was in existence when I was there for many years of this investigation was not a good HR department. The prior HR director who had been someone who was not afraid to stand up and say and do the right things, the team parted ways with him over what I believe to be his trying to do things the right way and being kind of reprised on for that. And then what happened afterward was just a weird dynamic where HR really didn't do anything to protect its employees. And instead, all it did was propagate and continue the environment and the toxic behavior that was happening across the company and in the front office. The report says early in the investigation, the investigators learned that the Sun's HR department had historically maintained poor records and accordingly the HR files received by the investigators were limited in number, incomplete and disorganized. Basically, it was wiped. Yeah, I've had in these group chats that I'm with other people, that conversation has happened, that there were purging of documents and paper trails regarding many of these kind of complaints. Again, these are not complaints specific to Robert Sarver, but more about the toxic environment. There's probably going to be more here. Yeah. This won't be the last time we talk about Robert Sarver and the Phoenix Suns in this investigation. So I'm not surprised that the NBA did not get rid of Robert Sarver and force him to sell. Like you said in the ESPN report by Baxter Holmes, a really scathing account of what working at the Phoenix Suns was like for both men and women in the toxic culture there. But there wasn't the smoking gun, the tape. And until that happens, until that's materialized, I couldn't see the NBA forcing a sale. I mean, any last thought here? Someone asked me, is this the end of it? Are we going to hear anything else? I don't know. I don't know, Tom, because I feel like they did a pretty exhaustive investigation. At the same time, there's no shortage of people who are pretty publicly irate about this. It'll be interesting to see if the league bows down to what essentially is public pressure. Speaking of public pressure, we're going to talk to Matt Sullivan of Rolling Stone magazine about Stephen Curry and his biggest regret in his playing career involving the Donald Sterling Warriors Clippers series of 2014 and the decision to boycott. We're going to talk about that and more with Matt Sullivan coming up on Basketball Illuminati. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity in the grave lie not in the truth, but what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. 
keeps them up nights. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man, you can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do something really outrageous. I'm gonna tell the truth. Stephen Curry is putting it all on the line. This is the cover story on Rolling Stone. We have the author of that cover story feature, Mr. Matt Sullivan. Greetings. Greetings. We used to work together at Bleacher Report. I think I wrote a bunch of stories for you, Matt, and nothing got quite the treatment like this. Come on. We always tried to get you good access, Tom, but you know the cover of Rolling Stone still means something despite whatever you make of the death of Prince. Walk me through how you became interested in telling this story and Stephen Curry. Had you had much experience working with him before? So I wrote this book, as I think I've been on chatting with you guys before, about the intersection of activism, hoops, influence, if you will. And that was centered mostly around the Nets, but it did delve across the league. And and I did speak briefly with Steph and Kerr and some other guys on the Warriors about that kind of formative moment when Trump went after them over the White House visit and you bum the greatest or at least most popular tweet in sports history. (laughs) And it was something I wanted to return to. And our editor-in-chief at Rolling Stone had been working with me on some of our vaccination scoops, Kyrie, et cetera, et cetera. And we just thought it was the right time, like the day after Steph won it, to go at his team in particular, not through the Warriors, but to big up some of the influence that he's had, but has maybe not redefined yet. He does a lot behind the scenes, doesn't quite have as many press releases as LeBron about his empire. And he kind of chose the pandemic as his time to recharge. And now all that stuff was coming online. So we also thought, you know, with an election coming up, there are few people the world can agree upon as much as Steph Curry. And we thought he was kind of a uniter in chief for this divided moment of ours. There was a scene at the Boys and Girls Club in LBC with Snoop. And that was early August. For a journalist working on stories like this, that's an eternity. A month of sitting on Steph Curry's comments about the KD trade request and going into the offices of Brooklyn, Joe Sy, and essentially demanding that the GM and the coach be fired. You're talking to Stephen Curry at the time that this is all going down and you got to just pocket it until September. It was tough. We thought about going out with it basically the day after KD decided to stay when it was still in the news a few weeks ago. And I just thought it, it was not fair to Steph to drop that bomb without the greater context of all the good work he's doing. It was tough to sit on, but it was it was fascinating to see Steph play kind of NBA gossip, right? Like he's, he's out here talking about Jalen Brown and how pissed he is out on Twitter about having his name leaked. And it was cool to see Steph as just kind of a fan. And then later that afternoon, we're chopping it up and he's getting quite animated about KD. You know, I talked to... Seth Curry in my reporting and kind of the Curry verse, if you will, as they call it, you know, he was like, yeah, I, I talked about it with my brother. You know, I'm worried <laughs> I might be in the trade. Of course we talked about it and that he was taking it seriously or entertaining it says a lot about his character. And I think he meant as, you know, a competitor and a champion who wouldn't bat an eyelash at thinking about blowing up the roster. But when I went from kind of shadowing him with Snoop, just chopping it up to real talk, it sucked. It was like the last question of our sit down that day. And so the PR person's coming over my shoulder, like he's got to go to the next thing. He's got to go sign an (laughs) endorsement deal. And I wanted to keep talking about KD, but he was really, I don't know, like I never thought, I don't know what you guys think, I never thought the KD departure was a condemnation of their relationship. I'm not sure they ever really had beef, but it was nice to hear Steph talk so glowingly. And it seemed genuine to me. It didn't seem like he was doing it to get it out there. Yeah, that's a weird thing for me, Matt, because people obviously ran with the quote. There was never a point where I felt that Steph had any sort of resentment or animosity towards Kevin Durant, even though of all the people, he was the one that probably lost the most in terms of where his marketing dollar was going prior to Kevin Durant joining the Warriors and what happened to it afterwards. And obviously there were a lot of things that happened, including 
a shoe that flopped, losing after going up 3-1 in the finals, all that stuff. But he never throughout that ever kind of hesitated or showed any kind of irritation about Durant's presence. If anything, it was Durant that wasn't irritated at Curry, but more irritated at the fan base for never loving him like they love those guys. Yeah, and the media. I remember KD got really pissed that Ethan Strauss, Tom's BFF. <laughs> yeah, dude, Ethan Strauss who come in here and just give his whole opinion on stuff and make it seem like it's coming from me. Ethan's book saying just that, that KD kind of couldn't handle how much of a love fest there was for Steph in the Bay. I mean, I remember following up on that with lots of KD's folks in the reporting of my book, and it was true. I mean, that's what he told his confidants, that Kevin couldn't feel the love as much. And I think, when is that going to change? When are people not going to love Steph Curry? And if you can't deal with that, that's what you're signing up for. And so I saw this as a public peace offering from Steph, but also just a window into their admiration for each other. And I don't know, Steph's not the type of person who's going to hate on somebody who would really welcome anybody under his team if it meant he would win, right? Let me ask you this. Given that we all agree that wasn't that surprising of a statement from Steph, throughout the course of your interviewing him and preparing this story, what was something that did surprise you? Well, several things. He got really openly reflective about therapy. I don't think celebrities of that level often get to talk about what's actually inside their head. And it took a while for me to get him opening up about it. And I talked about my therapy and he was talking about how he's not alone that often and how he's got the pressure of being a gazillionaire and his family and his parenthood. He really was having trouble finding ways to attack this stuff in a concentrated way. And I think that we all see stuff as this do-gooder, do everything, save the world. Everybody loves him. He can do no wrong. But I think internally, he was having this struggle with how to focus on having that joy that we all know him for. And maybe it's not that easy being Steph. I guess I was hoping to have him bear that part of himself and his mind. And his family did as well. And I don't know, he was talking about this one time when there was some folks in his inner circle who he had a falling out with. And he felt that they were taking advantage of his trust. Some folks thought that they were taking advantage of his money. And, and he got pissed off. He kicked a basketball through his front door. And his family tried to be there for him. But he just broke down crying, went into a room by himself and just sat there with himself. And he was like, I'm not by myself that often. He's growing up. And I think we see this dude as kind of this baby face, do no wrong, perfect guy. And it surprised me that the dude, you know, gets on FaceTime therapy rather than just poop it up every day. Matt, I want to ask you, you find out this nugget, this jewel of the Kevin Durant reaction. You have that as part of your piece. Were you worried that it would overshadow the rest of the article, which is really more of a profile of the man than the basketball player? 100%. And once I knew that he had said that to me, once he knew that he had said that to me, we almost didn't have to talk about basketball anymore. You know, he knew that that was going to be a thing. He kind of gave me a nod. And that was that. After that interview concluded right on that question, we just kind of started finishing each other's sentences. You know, he didn't have to do his whole press release version of what the story was about and all, of, you know, his foundation stuff that I knew. And we just got to having more real talk, more follow-ups so that I could really press him. And I think that's more access than I think anyone's gotten to him in quite some time. But it, it was different because he went in knowing that he had to have real talk, that he had to talk about politics. Why did he know that? It was part of our agreement. And Rolling Stone usually gets a ton of time with musicians and stuff. Steph's obviously running around the world doing his many obligations. And so we're like, okay, we're going to take as much time as we can get with him, but we're going to max that out without pleasantry, with real talk about who the real Steph Curry is on real world issues. And so he went into it knowing we weren't really going to talk hoops. And my basketball questions were always like the last thing I snuck in there. I don't know if he was like overprepared, but we would talk about, say, his kind of wishy-washy answer back in the day to the bathroom bill down by Tom in North Carolina. And he nearly gave me an equivocating answer as we were running through a lot of these big moments in his life. And then I would come back to it and be like, are you sure Like you didn't let down your fans in the LGBT community? And so I thought as we kind of 
kept going down this laundry list of real world issues in his career, he got realer and realer and, and we kind of peeled away at the onion a, a little more each time. I was going to ask that as he gets more involved in politics, the meeting point of being someone who, I don't know how many NBA fans know, he's a very religious person. And some of those conflicting political ideologies and ideas of more liberal thought processes. How does he reconcile all that? I'm not sure he does. You touched on that at the end of the story, talking about abortion, Roe v. Wade. It did come up in your piece where essentially you're like, hey, your upbringing and your religious views, do they go in conflict of a lot of your present day beliefs? I think he's thinking about this stuff like any deeply religious human being in the spotlight and with a liberal bent does. We were talking about how, you know, we're going down this laundry list of kind of political moments in his career. And I was saying, you know, it's really bold of you guys to do the Biden endorsement, the opening act for Biden in, in the 2020 Democratic Convention, and how I thought that was impressive. And yet his wife had told me, Aisha, that, that he was gung-ho, she was trepidatious, that they were bringing out the kids in this kind of cute segment. And he volunteered, uh, I don't know, just because we were having a comfortable conversation, that Biden and Harris are obviously pro-choice and, and that that was a difficult thing for him. He didn't want it to seem to his religious fans like he was necessarily agreeing with every position they had. And, you know, I think he's going through the stuff where his mom told him that she had an abortion with what would have been, I guess, his older sibling, that she almost had one. She thought about having one with him. And I think he's processing this stuff like a normal human being. And then he says he's like neither pro-choice nor pro-life. And I follow up later in the day in the same kind of KD conversation. So you're neither pro-choice nor pro-life. Am, am I getting that right? And he's like, absolutely. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm absolutely neither this nor that. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And then and then I followed up again in, in a subsequent conversation when I was talking about both the, the bathroom bill and this, asking, like, what's the deal with your Pentecostal church and the pastor there who made him sick to his stomach that the White House was, you know, having rainbow colors after the same-sex marriage decision? And he's like, you know, there's a fine line, and I have certain beliefs, and if that's not cool with everybody, that's how it is. But yeah, it's a little wishy-washy. He's like, you know, with the, with the bathroom bill, he's like, that's the time I realize you're not going to please everybody. And maybe he's okay with that. And he's still pleasing a lot of people despite this religious golden boy sheen, which might not always sit well with the most liberal among us. Do you get the sense that he's at peace with the KD thing and all that at a time when he's the champion? You know, like how much of his feelings about how that ended and where it is now informed by the fact that he's on top of the world. Yeah. That you caught him right after winning the title. Like I love my time with KD. If we get him great, if we don't get him great, we still got a great team. I feel like that is part of the calculus there. Yes. But I think he's in denial that he's on the back nine of his career. We almost just kind of had a running joke about, yeah, you're in your prime. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're in your prime. And I think that means that he's more competitive than ever because he's thinking about his legacy more than ever. You know, we talked and this, this wasn't quite in the story about how Kobe kind of chose to start defining his legacy very late in and, and after his career and how he kind of looked to that as, you know, one potential template as opposed to LeBron, who obviously did it very contemporaneously with the, the kind of apex of his superstardom. And it just struck me that he refuses to see that other side of the mountain, but he's sort of starting to peer over the ledge. And I think that means that he's at peace with everything behind him, but he would absolutely go load up where he can. I mean, the more you talk about, I uh, talk with Kerr, talk with Iggy, a lot of folks who didn't make the final cut of the story apologized to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for cutting him out, which I felt very bad about. Damn, you cut wow, out Kareem? Kareem? I mean, there's space in this dead tree print days, you know? <laughs> but Steph and the Warriors folks seem to be moving past this kind of era where they were this perfect, joyous team where they all read each other's eye language and just like, pass five times behind the back and through the legs. And, and I think now it's more like developing into something that can last. And he was really excited about like Kaminga, Poole, Wiseman. He was going on and on about reloading rather than looking back or being at peace with anything at all. He was very much looking forward, which is interesting when you're, when you're also looking at your off-the-court legacy. What did you cut out from Kareem? Yeah. Give it to us. He was saying you have to get uncomfortable with supporting causes that you don't necessarily feel a hundred percent and like, like you have to choose your battles. But when you're, when you're at that level, Kareem said, it's good to get uncomfortable and that these guys are going to have even more of, of an influence in times when 
the social justice fight goes away and the fists in the air come down a little bit, you know, and people forget about the midterms because they're busy watching the Golden State Warriors. I think my editor probably thought it was a bit too thought leadery, perhaps. And, and I don't think Stephen Cream have that greater relationship. But I was trying to talk to a lot of OGs as, as well as the young hoopers. So. Did Kareem have a specific example that he experienced of that? No, I think he was kind of coming down from his own ivory tower, as it were, and speaking in broad strokes, but saying, you know, only Steph knows how far he's going to be willing to go. Pi Day is Stephen Curry's favorite holiday? It's his birthday. <laughs> like, it's not a random, I'm going to hold you and your, your editor accountable for this. <laughs> Footnote. It's his birthday. I use that as a easy transition into one of my favorite details in the story. That quote was from his sister, who then went on to tell me that when she was kind of this preteen, staying up late at night past her bedtime, her older brother would come back from the AAU circuit to cuddle up next to her on the couch and watch the Princess Diaries yeah. on repeat. It's a little weird. Which speaks to the kind of soft and fuzzy Steph Curry, but The Princess Diaries is really whack. <laughs> it's not good. You're sidestepping a means accusation. You're sidestepping it. <laughs> it was his birthday. It's true. I probably could have cut that for Kareem. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we could throw his sister under the bus that she didn't add. You know, it's his favorite holiday, but also... Yeah, his favorite day is his birthday. <laughs> Talk to me about Under Armour and how Under Armour impacts oh, yeah. the Steph Curry legacy and, and how he feels about Under Armour as it stands today. From the beginning, it was supposed to be this thing that stood him apart, right? He got this sweet deal contract for the Warriors in many ways. I think he's told this to Draymond. He struck out on his own anyways because of that contract, because he could be something special. And, and Under Armour is lucky to have Steph rise at the same time that they had the potential to rise. Again, your boy Strauss reported that at one point, Steph was worth $14 billion to this company. And he was getting the resources of a mom and pop shop, right? Like a handful of folks dedicated to this brand that uh, I think by some estimates was worth like $200 million. And, you know, I, we can all make fun of the Curry 2 dad shoe or whatever, but this was going after the Walmart crowd. It was working. And I think a lot of it was the underlying lack of dedication that Steph and his team saw as he and this grew and their value to the brand grew. It's been well documented that Kevin Plank said Trump was an asset to the country. I don't think that helped. I think what helped less was that Plank was personally involved in some design decisions where he was seen as leveraging the Steph signature name and brand for his own brand for UA. And so you saw gigantic UA logos on shoes where Steph felt that it was his time to rise, that his brand was in many ways bigger than Under Armour. And so that reached ahead at this meeting in 2018, which again, like Steph was just going there with me. He was like, I got mad, nodded down at his crotch and said, I put it on the table. Those relationships have evolved, I guess they would say. But now as we speak, He's negotiating a lifetime deal, which I know they want to be kind of up there with LeBron's, I think reported 30, 31 mil a year deal, cost that out over a lifetime of a healthy person is like a billion dollars. And so they're negotiating this as Steph still has, you know, bubbling tensions. And I think he'll use, he'll use that and maybe this story as leverage to, to show that he deserves a lot more from a company that owes him almost everything. Matt, you mentioned in, in there that as he realized, I don't have to raise my voice to make my point made. He was talking about leveraging, perhaps leaving at the end of his Under Armour deal. How close was he to actually say, you know what, because of all the stuff, the stuff with the shoe, the stuff with the, the Trump comments, with Kevin playing, how close was he to saying, sayonara, I'm going somewhere else? Very. If that particular meeting, which was a very come to Jesus, this guy's coming in or he's walking out. I think Nike slash Jordan brand were in the waters. That was the moment he would have bailed. I think now... With this billion-dollar negotiation, it's not an or-else type of situation. But he could, if he doesn't get what he wants, if he doesn't, if this like mom and pop shop doesn't turn into Jordan Lebron levels of dedication, what's stopping him from just you know letting his contract run out in 2024 and going and becoming you know a huge deal at, at Jordan Brand? I know he looks up to Jordan and, and his you know business acumen, and that jo Jordans didn't become as big of a thing until. Um, really late in Jordan's career and, and even at, especially after it, I don't know, he, he could still walk. So Matt, as you do these five interviews across the summer, one thing kept popping up for Steph 
And that was a thing that I you know, hadn't thought about much until today with Robert Sarver's investigation, the report, the findings of the NBA's report coming out in a 40 plus page document. Steph Curry still thinks a lot about the Sterling boycott game or the boycott that never happened. So did you go into these interviews feeling like, all right, I'm going to ask him about this? Or did he bring it up a bunch of times unprovoked? Both. I went into it like... Steph made fun of me because I had this very detailed list of questions that I was trying to get through in our short time available. But I was like, I'm a notes guy. And then you got back at him by saying his favorite day was Pi Day. <laughs> <laughs> You're the nerd. You're the nerd. I had it on the next page and he volunteered it as a big regret. And we got we got into it and I re-reported uh, the whole Sterling saga in, in my book. So I knew it pretty backwards and forwards, but I never knew that he and Chris Paul specifically met as the shit was hitting the fan. Nobody knew exactly when Silver was going to rule. And they met after shoot around and Steph made clear we should walk off the court after tip off. And, and then again, in pregame warmup time, when I know that the clips were proposing, you know, Matt Barnes was like, well, we could turn the t-shirts inside out or we could turn around, around tip off. But it was always stopping short of a boycott. And I had talked to Andre Iguodala several times about this, Draymond as well. And, and they made clear that they would have boycotted. I think what's interesting is Steph really wanted to do and, w- and was pushing you know, CP, who, who was kind of the decision maker in that, in that locker room along with Doc who would have respected any any boycott, that Steph could have flexed there. But right, he's like 25, 26 years old at the time. I don't think he's found that voice despite the desire and really the instincts. And I think seven, eight years later, like have those instincts really led to action or have those instincts to flex his influence, to do the right thing, trust his brain over his body and his brand, right? Has his brain always won out over his brand? Or is he so calculating in his wishy-washiness that he will always go with the safe deferential decision? Yeah, because I mean, part of that comes from the privilege of four world championships later at the time. Yeah. He's Steph Curry, a good player and all-star, but still searching for that first mountaintop. I kind of feel like I don't want to question a guy's internal thought process, but I feel like it's tainted somewhat by the success he's had. Now, obviously, he, he has that leverage and he has that power i don't know if that existed back in 2013 2014 when that happened yeah 2014 he was like you said an all-star but he didn't have his magical season yet he was still this amazing scorer but not considered a transcendent player i think you know nothing would stop miguel bridges from boycotting the first game of the season over sarver himself right now and i asked steph and steve kerr if they really wanted to put that boycott power or that boycott guilt to work now, I asked them both, it was kind of a heady, politicized uh, hypothetical, but couldn't the world champion Golden State Warriors refuse to play basketball this season until the Senate took an up or down vote on an assault weapons bill? And they were both like, hmm, yeah, we could. And, And I was like, well, wouldn't it take Steph Curry to make that okay? Wouldn't he need to sign off to do that? And they were both like, separately, you know, hmm, okay. And Kerr was like, but would that really do anything? And this is Steve, who's, you know, cares more about this issue than anybody in the league, personally and, and philosophically. And I think Steph kind of was like, yeah, I'm not sure how much that would do. That's when he went back again, Tom, to, to the Sterling thing. And, and I think the idea of boycotting is a very powerful thing. And I'm not sure... And Steph agreed. Steph actually brought this up that not that much had happened as a result of the Bucks boycott, right? Because these guys are always find themselves caught on their heels rather than kind of prepared. And there was a social justice coalition, which I reported for GQ, but didn't do that much. And I think these guys don't realize that the power of the coin to, to hit the NBA where it hurts is really powerful. That especially goes in the case of owners, as we saw when you know, the Sterling stuff was going down or covering up the advertisements. I think I mean, it's probably as surprised as anybody that are unsurprised that Sarver is not really getting hit that hard anywhere but the pocket that doesn't mean anything to him. And so there's a lot of wishy-washy still going on across the NBA. It does take guys like Steph Curry to grow up and realize that boycott is the strongest weapon these guys have. To be clear, if he could do it again, he would lean harder on Chris Paul and the Clippers to boycott or would he just said i would have boycotted no matter what they decided he clarified that he he would have deferred because it was not their 
fight so much as their kind of battle. They were they were the the you know coming in in behind. But um, yeah, he he would have been less diplomatic about it and and more real. Matt, last thing here, you've reported on a bunch of NBA stories over the past several years. Uh, Kyrie, KD, Steph. This is a Steph story, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. Where do you think the KD Kyrie saga is today as we sit here in mid-September with training camp around the corner? Where's Kyrie and KD's head at from your from your vantage point? Hoops, hoops, hoops. No drama. I wouldn't be shocked if these guys walked up to media day press conferences and refused to take any question about the entire offseason saga <laughs> and just insisted on talking about basketball. From what I understand, I, I haven't reported the hell out of this, but a couple texts coming in seem to think that the idea is let's focus on basketball. And I think Nash knew when he came in that he would have to juggle ego, but I think he's also hasn't been able to show that he's potentially a, a wizard of a strategic basketball coach. Instead, he's just kind of trying to defer a lot. So I'm hoping from a basketball fan perspective that they are allowed to get out there and hoop. You know that that's what KD is about deep down. I'm not sure it took Sean Marks and Joe Sy saying much more than let KD be KD to do that. And you can't just will away drama, especially when you're Kyrie freaking Irving. But maybe that's the pact that they'll ultimately come to that will lead to success. It's obviously easier said than done, but I wouldn't be surprised if they shut down the media and their own social media as a way of getting away from drama and that cycle that they kind of unwittingly perpetuate by force of their personality and ego. What could they have done differently? I'm talking about Josiah, Sean Marks, and Steve Nash. What could they have done differently from the beginning that could have avoided the outcome of this summer while still retained those guys? It's strange because Sean Marks came in to this would-be dynasty when these guys arrived and I started reporting my book, totally sucking up to them. You guys can do whatever the hell you want. I think there was a breaking point. It seemed like it was not quite at the vaccination showdown with Kyrie, but maybe a little before when he was just getting kind of annoying and disappearing. When that table started to turn and and Cy, who is a real businessman, you know, I think got Marks scared. GMs are always, as you know, I mean, scared that they're going to lose their job above all else. Like they'll do anything to keep their job, even if it means pissing off Kevin Durant. And I think it became a management versus superstar thing. And that was a surprise to KD, who feels, I think, rightfully that player empowerment entitles him and his talent entitles him to anything. And there was a lot of shade thrown at Kyrie through management. I think KD felt a little more allegiance to Kyrie than maybe has been out there. And and so I think they're going to stick up for themselves, but also maybe make a deal, right? Like, We're not going to deal with the media. You guys shield us like you first promised, and you let us poop like we all want to. And I I don't know if Steve Nash did anything wrong so much as get dealt a pretty bad hand, and I I think he'll be a good peacemaker in this situation. That's Matt Sullivan. Catch his story on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Stephen Curry is putting it all on the line. Matt Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us on Illuminati. We'll talk soon once the season gets started. Appreciate you, gentlemen. 